everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Stigma podcast. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and in this week's episode, we are here with a discussion on meditation and the predictive brain. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Ruben Lokenin. Dr. Ruben is a lecturer and assistant professor at Southern Cross University in Australia. His research focuses on the psychology and cognitive neuroscience of insight, meditation, and all things ineffable. His work is deeply theoretically driven and transverses multiple levels of analysis, from neurons to psychology. His interest also lies in understanding the mind in order to uncover simple and effective empirical paths towards peace. Extremely excited to be speaking with him here today. Dr. Ruben, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. There are such great topics that we'll be discussing today. Um, One is that of meditation in specific three styles of meditation, and another is on a concept known as predictive processing. And I guess then we'll kind of merge these two together, Uh, but I'd like to start with them first separately, if if that's okay. So the basis of this conversation is on one of your papers. Um, You wrote a fascinating paper along with uh, Dr. Helen Slachter called From Many to None, uh, or one meditation and the plasticity of the predictive mind, which I'll link to uh, this episode. Now, um, predictive processing is a fascinating model. Um, personally, to me, it makes sense on so many different levels. I first read about it when I was writing my dissertation last year uh, for my master's on altered states of consciousness. And uh, there was a paper by Professor Robin Cart Harris, where he spoke on the active inference theory and the Bayesian theory. And as, as I was reading it, I thought, you know, holy shit, this makes so much sense. They're onto something. And then I read um, Professor Anil Seth's book called Being You, and then finally came across your paper, your amazing paper on how it maps onto uh, meditation. And I just thought, well, you know, this makes first sense for psychedelics. This makes sense for meditation. This is a great theory. <laughs> so maybe we can start with that. Where did this or when did this idea of predictive processing come from, in particular to the field of neuroscience and cognitive psychology? And how does it work exactly if we could explain predictive processing in simple terms? (laughs) The ultimate challenge. I don't think I've yet come across anyone who successfully explains predictive processing in simple terms. So I don't expect (laughs) to succeed here. But um, yeah, look, it is is such a fascinating theory. For me, you know, it was especially exciting because I felt that for the first time we had something that could explain many different phenomena, um, also deep uh, subjective phenomena. So, you know, often it feels like you come across a theory and it doesn't quite map onto our everyday experience and the, you know, things that we are constantly encountering in our day-to-day lives as human beings. But then this, uh, this theory does seem to actually work in terms of the laboratory data Um, But also when we look around and we just see how humans work, you know, the predictive processing framework seems to do a reasonable job. Um, And so the history is kind of debated. Um, So I won't go into that. You know, you find um, early suggestions uh, in this direction, you know, over 200 years ago. And some people even go to, you know, ancient philosophers to see some, you know, remnants of this theory. But the contemporary version of it um, starts with a basic principle. And that basic principle is that everything we experience is an inference to some degree or another. So that means that everything we encounter um, 
whether it's our perceptions, our sensory experiences, our thoughts, our emotions, our uh, relationships, all our higher order thinking, basically all that makes us human can be construed as an inference. Now, what do I mean by an inference? Specifically, the reason that it's called sometimes predictive processing is that it is a kind of prediction. Now, what do I mean by prediction? That could be a another sort of word for that is simulation. So somehow, based on the data that the system, the organism, you know, often people point to the brain, but I would point to the whole organism, we are faced with limited information in each moment, drawing on our sensory data that comes in from the eyes, the ears, um, the nose, right. our um, touch, and so on. And so from this limited information, we somehow have to know what is actually happening in the moment, at least to a degree that helps us survive and and to get through moment to moment. And so the way that it's proposed that the brain or organism solves this problem is to, to actually generate a model of the present moment, a prediction of the present moment and everything in it um, fresh each time. But it does this based on past experience rather than what is actually being encountered. So what happens is most mostly people assume that we're taking in the world from the outside in, like a video camera or something like that. But the kind right. of paradigm shift here is to realize that actually we're generating this moment from within, drawing on a rich repertoire of past experiences. And this is computationally much more efficient. Because if you were to have to go through the complex process of mm -hmm. building each moment from scratch, from this noisy sensory data that's coming in through our ears, eyes, nose, and skin, mm -hmm. and from inside of our body, that would be a lot of hard work. Whereas if you can just generate this moment based on your past experience, and then update those predictions with the new data that comes in, that's much more efficient uh, way to deal with uh, uh, the situation and to, to be able to maintain a um, what's called a generative model um, over time. So this is a very basic principle is that where basically everything we experience is, is a prediction. Okay, It's an inference drawing on past experience. And so there's lots of ways to tell this story. You know, another way that people tell this story is that there's this like a uh, boundary between the outside world and our body. And so we're not able to gain direct access to anything that's happening outside in the world. You know, we seem to perceive things somewhere far away from us, but actually the only thing that we're actually encountering is the impressions of light on our eyes, the vibrations in the ears, you know, the molecules in our noses and, and the impressions on our skin and the stuff that's going on in our bodies. So basically, we never actually encounter anything out in the world. We only encounter these sort of two-dimensional sensory impressions. And so somehow from that, we need to build this model. So this is really the basics of predictive processing. But it gets, of course, much more complex because you have to start to think about things like action. You need to start to think about things like emotion thinking, like how does thinking come about? And so as you sort of build up this model, um, it starts to get much more complicated. You start to think about levels of abstraction. So it's not just like, we're not just inferring the sensory experience, but we're inferring the meaning of those sensory experiences. And we're inferring the meaning of those experience, sensory experiences over time. And we're reflecting on the meaning of those sensory experiences with regard to ourselves. We're reflecting on the, on the affordances, how we're able to actually mm. behave in interaction with the things in the world. It's all self-related. And so in, in a way, the predictive system is not trying to infer reality with that much fidelity. It's trying to infer it in a way that works, right? So it's also constantly, in a way, selfishly referring everything to what is useful for it as a system and how it can act on it. And 
the way it actually comes to believe things mm-hmm. is also modulated by things like action. So we can we can choose what we actually end up experiencing based on our eye movements, our behaviors, the kind of situations we put ourselves in. And so we kind of manipulate our model yeah. of reality through our actions. Okay, so there, there's a bunch of stuff there that I'm sure is not as simple as you would have hoped, but hopefully that gets us started. <laughs> On the contrary, I was going to say, and you did it very beautifully and eloquently, I actually always wondered if the predictive processing model could apply for, you know, constructs, for example, our perception of our self-esteem. Can predictive Mm -hmm. processing even explain the way that we think others perceive us based on, as we already said, already built in frameworks of who we are um say if we in childhood you know if we were frowned upon uh, when we do something which isn't necessarily bad then as adults we have these predictions that everything we do or if we want to voice ourselves in a certain way then we would be perceived um by others within that framework again would that be an accurate way of applying predictive processing or or not sure yeah and and what you're applying there specifically is um to do with priors so priors within predictive processing is a bit like beliefs though priors are sort of mathematically defined within a bayesian framework and so what priors are is basically you could say that they're kind of the filters for how we perceive each each moment what what sort of how we actually end up constructing our predictions so the priors play a key role in constraining what kind of predictions we actually end up generating, which become our perceptions and experiences. So the priors are a bit like beliefs. Um, And so what can happen is um, if we're young, just as you say, you can encounter some sort of experience. um, And this experience might engender a new prior or belief about ourselves. And, you know, when we're, we're children, we haven't had much experiences with life, so we don't have a, a way to kind of prevent that prior from arising. So when we encounter an experience that makes us reduce our self-worth, reduce our self-esteem or something like that, then what can happen is that you have this, let's say, prediction error, and that gets ingrained in our sense of self um, as, a, as a novel prior, um, and then it can be really hard to override that prior. So, like, I can give you one example from my own experience. Like, I remember when I was um, in first grade, um, I, you know, I was really optimistic about going to this class and everything like this. And and I remember I saw this cool group of people that I wanted to be friends with, right? I wanted to be friends with them, and I thought they were super um, interesting. I was sure they would like me, right? Because I was a kid, and I thought, you know, I thought highly of myself at the time. And so I thought I would try to impress them by doing a handstand. And so, because, you know, I thought this is how you make friends, you go off. <laughs> and so I, I did this. I love it. I, You're like, I'm just going to show you tricks. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I did this handstand and, um, and, you know, I pulled it off perfectly, came out of that handstand thinking, you know, these people are going to think I'm super cool. We're going to be friends for sure. Um, and then I, you know, turned around ready to receive my applause. And basically one of the kind of cool kids in the group yelled out, hey, um, um, what did it, yeah, he goes, show off, just yelled out, show off. And then then the rest of the group sort of got behind mm. that. And, you know, then for me, this was like such a, oh, no, like I, I'm not who I thought I was, right? I, th- I thought I was cool because I could do these things. But no, actually, mm. I'm just a show off because I did this thing. Okay, so it's just an example. But basically, mm. you know, you, we encounter these little things in our lives that can be like a, it elicits a prediction error. Yeah. You expect one thing to happen, another thing happens. And now we change our prior. So now let's right. say, you know, this wasn't such a big deal, but I could change my prior in that situation as an example to think, oh, I'm not who I thought I was. I don't, I don't have such a, 
strong self-worth or I'm, I'm not good enough or something like this, right? So we can encounter some small experience or big experience like that in our childhood. And if we, if we, if we get this belief, this new prior, then what can happen is that we end up in all these self-fulfilling prophecies, these sorts of loops as a consequence of that prior. Right. Because what the system does is when it generates, when it has a belief ingrained, um, it takes a lot of evidence to make it change its beliefs. It's much easier to continue. It's, again, computationally more efficient to continue with your existing beliefs than it is to change our beliefs. And so this is a challenging thing is to actually encounter or, or create encounters for ourselves to, to, to revise old and ingrained beliefs. And so what we tend to do instead is we tend to act in ways that confirm our beliefs or interpret new information in such a way that they cohere with our priors. Right. So like, I don't know what's a good example, but let's say you do have some sort of prior, like I'm not good enough or some, something like that to do with self-esteem, as you mentioned, then, then you might um, go out and you might actually do well um, and achieve things, but that sense of achievement might be interpreted as, you know, this is, I'm, I'm only good because I'm capable of doing this achievement, but fundamentally I'm still not good enough, right? So you can somehow mm. kind of manipulate information in the world. This also happens perceptually in order to confirm our expectations uh, and our beliefs. And so there's lots of cool ways that meditation sort of interacts with this, this self-confirmation sort of uh, process that we, wow. we could potentially get into, but hopefully that sort of answers your question. It, wow! I, again, you you said it so. First of all, my heart and Dr. Ruben, that story it made my day. Oh my gosh, that's it's so interesting because kids are so innocent, right? And then the world is so cruel, and it just um it just shapes in a way of who we are. But I think it's so important to apply it in this sense um, because you kind of open your mind as well into understanding why you have certain beliefs. Like it's important to be educated on on these models because then you understand that oh okay. These are, you know, these are not facts, they're opinions. And then that opens a door for you in so many different ways. One of my favorite quotes is, um, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. <laughs> I feel like um, that, that could be kind of applied to that in a way. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this, this idea that everything is inference is really um, liberating in a way, because it, it allows us to have this sort of... Yeah metacognition about our experience that they are fundamentally always kind of up for debate let's say because you recognize that even what you perceive perceptually is something that is an inference and we can demonstrate that with things like visual right. illusions but we also have cognitive biases even our insight experiences can be wrong um, so all of these things at, at a basic level are inferences and this this connects to also contemplative traditions like buddhism who say that you know, ideas of emptiness, you know, things, things are empty of an essential nature. It's the same sort of principle, actually, from science, but to suggest that everything is, is inferential and therefore without sort of permanent real nature in some way. It is how we perceive it. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. I think something for me that you mentioned, and I just really want to highlight this, um, understanding that there essentially the way that we thought we see things is the classic um, bottom-up, excuse me, bottom-up processing model, the understanding that sensory information enters from the outside world in, right? And then perception is kind of seen as a passive process of responding mm -hmm. basically just to the sensory environment. 
Um, but then now we kind of know and accept that actually perception is not just a passive process of receiving sensory input, but it's an active process that involves the brain making the predictions, as you very rightfully were saying, about the world and then updating those predictions um, based on the sensory feedback. For example, your feedback was that you were a show off, you know, so um, that's kind of the way that we're constantly generating and testing predictions about the world rather than just simply responding to it. And I just think that's, you know, a very strong point to highlight. So yeah, thank you for highlighting that. Absolutely. And just like what I would just add to that is that, you know, if you start to think about the mind as some something a little bit bigger than what's behind our heads, you start to understand that the mind extends to the body, the mind extends to the world. All of this becomes part of our inferential sort of stimulation in some sense. And then you start to recognize that, you know, we're also co-constructing those inferences constantly. That, you know, not only is it all passively being taken in, we're generating it from within. And then we're also creating our world and our environment for certain kinds of predictions to arise in the future. So you get this like interesting loopy thing where mm. it's, uh, it's not very passive at all. It's very active. And, you know, this is where you start to understand the term active inference, which is how these models are sometimes called now in their most encompassing or contemporary form. And it's active inference. That means inferences that we bring to life, not only through our past experiences, but also through our actions and the way that we create our worlds, which then give us give rise to certain kinds of experiences. Like most of the things I'm looking at on my desk and things around me, like whether it's cups or pots, plants or tables or microphones or computers, these are all things that humans have made, right? So, so we are co we are constantly constructing yeah. the predictions that arise in this way. Yeah, very well said. I do want to clarify something because um, when I was first reading Being You, I did get confused at the moment because you know the color red isn't exactly the color red or, you know, this mug might not be shaped exactly like this mug or, or whatever, then does that mean everything we're seeing is an illusion? Um, the way I ended up understanding is that obviously external stimuli exist, but it's, it may not be exactly what you see. So red might not be exactly that color red, but it's still there. I could get, this could get deeply philosophical and metaphysical and we can get into that. I kind of like <laughs> mm. I'm going to kind of sidestep that. And so, so the <laughs> contemporary kind of way to think about this, and this is the way Neil Seth talked about is as a controlled hallucination. So what do we mean by controlled? We mean that it's controlled yes. based on what is kind of actually out there. So you are interacting with something with some consistency, like tables don't suddenly turn into octopuses or something like that, right? And that's... Right. That's, that's because there, there's something there that constrains us to tend to see tables as tables intersubjectively. So you tend to see it as a table. I tend to see it as a table. We might call it something different based on different culture, but we, we have some basic agreement about that. And that's because there is some data there that manages to constrain our predictions. But it's, 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 it's much more complicated than saying that the table is actually there, right? Because what's the difference between a table and a chair? And if you start mm. to unpack those categories, the categories actually start to break down because you can sit on tables, you can eat off chairs, and you can have cha chairs that look like tables. And so all categories then just get kind of fuzzy. Now, the same goes with um, – so this is called the problem of vagueness in philosophy. Same issue goes for color, right? So there is something that – consistently gives rise to our experiences of color but we can't say that color exists out there you need a subjective perceiver to actually experience color 
what perhaps exists as wavelengths mm. of light or something like that, though those are just words as well, something consistent is able to give rise to relatively consistent categories in our mind. I think that's fair to say. But what we, what we, the, the presumption that something like a color actually exists or something like a table that ex- actually exists is, I think, um, is, is kind of misguided. Yeah, because, because categories break down when you look at their, mm. them, them a bit more carefully. Um, and, you know, without a subjective perceiver, who, who would be the one to say that colors have a particular kind of sensation to them, right? So that's what I would say about that. I mean, we could unpack that for a whole podcast, Absolutely. better not to get too uh, metaphysical. I love that. And I think it makes absolute sense. It's always about the perceiver at the end of the day. So you have a really cool background. Right off the bat, I may be wrong, so please correct me on that. But something that I love that you do is you focus a lot on the subjective experience um, mm. and you give a lot of emphasis and importance to it. You know, it's all about like finding empirical data and kind of ignoring the subjectivity of the experience. But then you bring um, you bring some of that into your work. Funnily enough, I first found you on Twitter and it was a tweet you wrote about your birthday. And I was like, oh, this guy looks really cool. But um, I I went onto your website and um, I just love that you also had a spiritual element to you, not only meditation, but I saw uh, you said that you also do conscious dancing, which is something I've always been um, curious to explore from a scientific perspective. But yeah, anyway, so um, my point is I'd love to hear a little bit more and our listeners as well about you yourself, a bit of your background, what you're interested in. And then maybe that's kind of how we can go into a little bit of, you know, your research and meditation as well. You're right. You know, I, I, I do have a strong interest in subjective experience because, you know, I, I am of the view that everything begins and ends in some way with events that we encounter in subjective experience. We're never actually able to step outside of human experience as much as we claim we can in science, for instance. We do our best to find intersubjectively um, consistent phenomena, but still we are always in the realm of subjectivity. We are always minds interpreting things, and we're always minds interacting with subjective experiences. And for me also as a cognitive neuroscientist and psychologist, like I want to understand phenomena that humans actually experience because otherwise what are, what is it that we're studying? Like what is the, what is the ground of what we want to understand Mm. if it isn't consistent subjective experiences that humans have? And this is why I'm interested in things like insight experiences because they, they seem fascinating in terms of something that we all experience a bit mysterious, the sense that we can suddenly come to know something and it can fundamentally change our perspective in a, in a moment of insight all the way from aha experiences to kind of mystical experiences. And then the kind of subjective phenomena that are most important to humans, you know, the things that they encounter in, in spiritual practice or in meditation, these are the things that people say, like, this is the most important subjective experience of my yeah. life. So as a psychologist, cognitive neuroscience, this is what I want to understand because there is a kind of, you know, that it grounds the whole, what's the purpose of studying? You know, one thing I'm sort of, um, although I'm someone who's really theoretically driven, what I'm not in favor of is taking on a theoretical perspective and then trying to mm. put subjective phenomena into that theory um, and then kind of lose sight of what it is that we're actually starting to study. So in some way, we... For me, it's important to always stay close to what is actually happening in human experience because that reminds me of what I actually want to understand. So this is, this is why I'm interested in that. Um, 
And, you know, the kinds of subjective experiences that I want to study are the ones that I've personally had and think are, are fascinating. And I'm kind of open about that. Um, I think there was a time in history and cognitive neuroscience and psychology where you um, it was kind of frowned upon to speak of your own experience because it meant that you would be biased or something like that. Yeah. The whole purpose of science is that we kind of do our best to remove those sci- those biases through methods, through collaboration, through peer review, through yeah, careful, rigorous techniques, blinding and so on. But for me, you know, and, and it ends up being the case, I think, for many people is that they are actually driven by things that they have a personal interest in. I mean, I, I don't if I find it 100%. kind of hard to imagine how somebody studies something for 60 years if they don't have any kind of skin in the game with that thing. And so for me, you know, things like meditation are, are dear to me. You know, I've been meditating for probably 12 years um, on most days, if not all days and um, in, in different traditions. Um, so I find mm-hmm. that very interesting. I find inside experiences very interesting because I went through phases in my life where I had a lot of inside experiences. Um, I find things like um, plant medicines. I find all these kinds of things very interesting. Um, and dance, I think, is also also fantastic and sort of somewhere you know dance is a bit like somewhere in the middle between meditation and psychedelics i would say um naturally induced yeah so you know i i i sort of dabble in my own subjective experience i'm interested in learning about these things and you know directly but also then analytically and i i i sort of hold um and i sometimes use these terms is you know that there is something sacred about science right because it's, it's sacred because it allows us to be try to be pure in our objectivity about something so i take it very seriously that when i'm trying to understand this phenomena i really want to understand it from a scientific perspective now i have this experiential thing going on that grounds the phenomena but i think that only helps with the scientific process actually and as long as you truly respect the scientific tools rather than trying to use the scientific tools to prove your point then, then your personal experience can only, mm. um, I think, serve you in 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 doing that. So, yeah, what what to actually say about myself? Well, I um I dabble in these things. Um, I did a PhD at the University of Queensland. Um, I sort of fell into psychology. I thought I was going to be an archaeologist. Um, or actually, I thought I was going to be a professional kickboxer wow. until I was nineteen. And then I um went to study archaeology, but it was an <laughs> arts degree. Uh, so that didn't work out. For some reason, I thought it wasn't cool to do an arts degree. So I went into geology, but um, didn't want to do all <laughs> the physics and, and didn't want to do all the chemistry. And it was getting in the way of my training at the time because I was um, still kind of focused on the kickboxing. But what happened was I, um, I had a psychology elective and I was reading some books. I think one of the main books that really influenced me was The Brain That Changes Itself by Jill Bolt Taylor. And um, I had a psychology elective. Then in a spontaneous moment, I I changed all my um, courses to psychology. Um, And around that time, I also had some inside experiences that changed my worldview a little bit. And so I became fascinated in in the mind uh, and consciousness um, and philosophy of mind and um, cognitive neuroscience and all these things. And so then I went on to do a PhD thesis on inside experiences because I thought this was a, a really interesting phenomena um uh did that and uh, we can talk about some of that stuff and i'm still you know really interested in insight a lot of the research i do now is is on that topic i think you also had a recent paper come out on that how insight is usually looked at through the lens of problem solving but you go on to talking about how insight can be found from many different avenues like psychotherapy and meditation and whatnot 
So yeah, yeah. Th- th- this was a paper about insight across different domains. So you have insights in problem solving, you have insights in psychotherapy, you have insights in terms of um, from meditation, you have a lot of insights in psychedelic domains um, um, and psychotherapy. So I, I think I already said that. But anyway, in this across all of these um, domains, insights are considered really important, but they haven't been sort of brought together to try to think about you know what 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 is this phenomena really and and, and what's going on. And so, you know, trying to bridge these different fields and trying to understand um, where true insights come from and where false insights come from and what leads to more insights and how can we kind of um, understand this phenomena to make us better information gatherers, better epistemic foragers in the world in order to, to understand how our mind comes to know and to feel what is actually true. So that's one thing. And so that's what I've spent also, yeah, now like 10 years studying. And um, and after I finished my PhD, I went and did a postdoc with uh, Professor Helene Slagter at, uh, initially at the University of Amsterdam and then the Freie Universität of Amsterdam. Um, and there we worked on, on predictive processing and uh, meditation. So I, I, just before I started the postdoc, I got fascinated by predictive processing and always wanted to do research on meditation. So this was kind of the perfect postdoc for me. Um, and we had some both theoretical and um, empirical stuff uh, to do, mostly working with EEG and looking at uh, advanced meditators. So really the kind of deep end of meditation practice. Mm-hmm. So we're not doing the kind of research where you try to see, um, you know, try to show that mindfulness is good for um, making people feel better, which is excellent and important research. But our sort of approach was, okay, let's find the most intense sort of meditation experts we can and let's try to understand the mind Mm. and the brain by getting people in unusual states uh, highly unusual states and seeing what's going on under the hood and then come up with um, theoretical perspectives that explain the kind of deeper end of meditation where you're working with with experts who are doing things that you know basically nobody else can do on demand and especially trying to look at, you know, what does that tell us about how much the, the mind and the brain can change um, and, and neuroplasticity uh, right. and these kinds of things. Um, so that, uh, you know, we were doing this, a lot of empirical work, um, which, which we're um, writing up now. And um, what happened was the pandemic also hit at one point. And so when the pandemic hit, I, um, uh, we couldn't get in the lab anymore oh, yeah. because all the labs were closed. Um, and so this gave me an opportunity to do basically nothing oh, but shit. think about the theoretical stuff uh, really deeply. So I spent the pandemic days kind of obsessing over these theoretical models of how we can think about meditation all the way from <laughs> when somebody begins meditation to when they're kind of hitting the real deep end of meditation, awakening experiences and non-dual awareness and these kinds of things. Um, and so that's what I did for yeah. um, those years, and, and that sort of culminated in this um, this theory paper that you mentioned um, at the beginning. I love it. So fascinating. But I'd actually uh, like to go a little bit more into that uh, paper, the paper I mentioned earlier uh, yeah. in the intro of this episode. You referenced three main styles uh, of meditation, if I'm correct. Uh, one, which is, I believe, focused attention. The second is open monitoring, and the third is non-dualism. And I guess I'm using their English terms here. But um, could you kindly explain what these three are and maybe just some examples of what each of these experiences would look like um, practically? 
Yeah, sure. So focused attention is um, usually what you get taught when you first go to, to practice meditation. So when you first go to a meditation teacher in most traditions, but certainly in the Buddhist traditions, what they'll try to do is get you to calm your mind a little bit, right? Just to stop the incessant chatter or let you realize that, you know, all the incessant chatter that's, that's going on. So yeah, this is what you do. You go to a meditation teacher and they want to just calm your mind down a little bit so that you can um, do other practices. So the focused attention, you know, it's, it's kind of self-explanatory. You focus your attention on something. And so then what they they usually give you an object of meditation. Now that object is what is the thing that you're focusing on, right? So different traditions will give you something different to focus on. Some some will tell you to focus on the breath. Some will tell you to focus on a mantra. Some will tell you to body scan. So that kind of gets into other practices as well. Um, but it doesn't really matter as long as you, uh, they give you some object to focus your attention on. And the idea with focused attention is very simple. You simply bring the attention to that object. If you lose focus. So one of the fun things you realize is that you don't have the capacity to choose what you focus on. It seems to automatically kind of journey off into some other realm mm. in your mind in, you know, after a few seconds or minutes at least. Um, and so basically you just have to keep coming back to that object of meditation. You, you lose the object, you come back to the object. You lose the object, you come back to the object. And the kind of goal of this practice is to bring some stability to the mind because the mind is all over the place and you know we're incessantly moving our bodies in everyday life but we're also incessantly moving within we're incessantly moving in terms of our emotional and um, cognitive lives full of thoughts full of stories full of things going on and so this focusing of yeah. attention just brings some consistency some stability to the system that's that's the idea and each of these can have degrees so focused attention can be kind of at, at, at a kind of superficial level where you can, okay, now I can actually feel my breath. Maybe before I couldn't even feel my breath because it was covered by so many thoughts and, and emotions and so on. But now at least I can feel my breath. You know, that's already a um, quite an achievement. Um, and then that can get much, much deeper. So you can take focused attention to real quite extremes. I mean, you know, the Buddhists talk about things like jhanas. So jhanas of deep levels of deepening focused attention. Focused attention isn't the best word for jhanas, but sometimes it's called mm. focused attention. But basically, if you keep on having one object of meditation, it'll continue to keep on, keep on deepening. Um, and we can talk about that, but I'll move on to the next, um, next meditation. And so usually you go from focused attention. And so in our paper and in previous research, these three, these three meditation styles that you, you brought up, the, these are kind of umbrella categories for a lot of different meditations and a lot of different things that can be done in different mm. um, traditions. Um, so I just want to put that caveat out there that, you know, it's rare that a meditation practice perfectly meets any of these categories, but these categories seem to be able to encapsulate lots of practices that people engage in. So focused attention is the first one. Um, open monitoring is usually considered the next step. Some traditions really emphasize open monitoring. Some, some emphasize more focused attention and some more uh, uh, non-dual practices. It depends on the tradition. But in most traditions, you might find that first you start with focused attention and then you move on to this open monitoring style of practice. So an open monitoring style of practice involves relaxing that focus of attention to open the scope of experience a little bit broader. So instead of like, for example, focusing on your breath, um, primarily, you might open the 
the focus of attention to include your whole sphere of experience. So you might allow anything that's arising in the body or the mind to just sort of come up and to be noticed and then and then released. And so you can probably already tell that doing something like that is really difficult if you don't have any focus. Hence, you need a little bit of focused attention in order to be able to have sufficient kind of stability and relaxation mm. and capacity to observe, i.e. be mindful, um, in order to be able to do something like open monitoring where you can actually start to kind of observe the process. You can actually start to observe, all right, how do, where does my emotional experience arise? Or what is my pain in my leg, for example? What does that actually yeah. feel like? Or what is the nature of my thoughts? Like, why is that thought coming from? Am I my thoughts? Right. So when you, you when you take this like slight step back or kind of de-reify from the process of experience, then you can actually start to observe the process of experience. So you you focus the mind a little bit, then you open the mind and you relax it, and then you can start to observe the actual process of how things are happening. You can observe how how the experience is changing, what what's leading to emotions, how they link to thoughts, maybe memories start to come up, whatever comes up. So you can see in open monitoring, there's still this sense that there's an observer observing all of all of experience. So it's still yeah. kind of this person self engaging in this thing called meditation, watching this experience unfold, and then trying to learn about the experience that's unfolding, which is paradoxically our experience, but then not us right so usually we kind of identify <laughs> with those processes that arise and we recognize mm -hmm. that in some level everything that's happening in my body and the emotions and the thoughts it is me but on another level like i can observe those things so then in a strange way actually it's it's also not me um it, it, and and so the open monitoring yeah. sort of mindfulness practice allows for this kind of de-reified observation of self-processes so that's that's kind of that, that basically is open monitoring, and you know that can also deepen. But mm. the way that open monitoring kind of deepens in a way is through insight, um, and and especially in the Buddhist tradition, right? It's it's called you know usually categorized vipassana within open monitoring, and vipassana um, translates to insight, um, and so you can say open monitoring is a kind of insight meditation, or one form of open monitoring is insight meditation. Mm. Now, you might say, where does that insight come from? Well, that insight comes from your newfound capacity to observe the processes of yourself, to begin to observe your mind, begin to observe your emotions, to observe your whatever happens in the body and not react and to just see, okay, how does this thing actually work? What am I? Like, what is this thing that I'm encountering? And isn't it mysterious that I can observe and encounter myself in this way? And so like this, the insight starts to potentially arise. I think I was interested to ask your views on that, but you know, this awareness reminds me of um, somewhat of Eckhart Tolle's pain body. He says that, you know, in order to understand your pain, you have to kind of sit with it. It's almost like you disconnect yourself with yourself, as you were saying, that paradox, and then you just sit with it. So don't be with your emotions, but sit with your emotions. So what essentially ends up happening is that you're just this observer and whether you're angry or you're sad or you're scared, you're not that emotion anymore, but you're just trying to understand where that emotion is within your body, just like you were rightfully saying. So I actually think 
you know, open monitoring is so good for um, emotional regulation and just, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to kind of disconnect when you're in a state of like high in- high intensity of emotions, whatever that emotion may be. And very interestingly, focus attention for me when you focus on one, like, you know, this cup and you just kind of focus on that on your breath. That is so difficult for me. Whereas I think being more aware of my surroundings and myself seems more easy. I just wonder, as I know you said, there's these steps, but I wonder if some people are more receptive towards one than the other. Yeah, no, I, um, that, that's a really good observation. And yeah, I, I, I fully agree that it's important for emotional regulation. And, you know, I just wanted to add to that, that, you know, in a, in a way we, we disconnect, but it's not a kind of dissociating disconnection. It's an intimate disconnection. You know, you, you're really there interacting mm. with the experience that's going on, but you're doing it as an observer rather than from the perspective of that trigger or from the perspective of that yes. emotion. Instead, you, you actually be, have a relationship with it and you can actually start to observe its process. That's what I would just add to that. And then the question of whether people have a propensity towards more like open monitoring or focused attention. Um, I think this is a really, you know, I, I, I do think that is the case. And ultimately, you know, what ends up happening is that when you do these things in practice, they actually really kind of mesh together. So even when you're doing an open monitoring practice, you might still mm-hmm. have a little bit of a focus on some object. Like you might kind of tend towards focusing on the breath just because that feels natural within this open expanse of open awareness, open monitoring. So you can bring this sort of relaxed openness also to the focused attention practice, and you can bring the focused attention into this open monitoring practice. So, you know, it gets super blurry, like all categories do again, uh, between between these practices. Um, and certainly if, if one is doing a kind of tight, kind of um, forceful focused attention that can that can be really draining and difficult and you know not something that i think is a really useful practice but some let's say intentional use of focused attention at least in these traditions is said to strengthen your open monitoring because then your open monitoring is encountering the processes at a deeper level it's somehow more precise you know it increases the kind of um maybe you could say decreases the temporal width at which you're able to observe things. So one way to think about this is that you're able to observe things faster when you're more focused. This is kind of speculative, but I think there's some evidence Mm. for this in, in, in um, sort of the perceptual science of meditation is that, you know, with attentional blink tasks and so on, these, these sort of demonstrate that meditators are able to in a way slice up the moment into a finer grained moments and so if, you ha- if you're very focused, you get to kind of zoom into the moment in the sense that you're able to perceive um, the detailed qualities of each moment's movement from one moment to the next. Right. And if you're able to do that, you're able to open monitor the processes of emotion, thought, self-generation, all of these kinds of things with more nuance and more detail. And so this is how the focused attention kind of feeds into the open monitoring and so on. And these two things become an actual practice, a kind of dialectic where it's like, oh, I need a little bit more focus or, oh, I need a bit more relaxation. And so you actually start to use these things to kind of get into the ideal sort of balance between all of these things. Very well said. And then you mentioned the third um, style of meditation, which was non-dualism, one I find most confusing. (laughs) So can we go into that one a little bit? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so it is it is a bit more confusing. It's a little bit more esoteric, um, but it is a very common practice. And um, and so the non-dual practice involves um, letting go of the subject and the object. So when we say non-duality, we mean this duality between the sense of self, let's say behind the eyes, inside the head, or throughout the body, and the sense that there is something being observed, some object of perception. You know, we 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 see a cup and we think that cup is certainly not us, but who is us? Well, it's the one who's observing the cup, right? So we have this duality built into our basic experience. It's kind of just inherent to experience itself in a way. And so what you see, you notice is that um, if you're doing open monitoring, well, who's, who's doing the monitoring, right? Um, so there is this sense of, well, it's me. I'm the one who's sitting in meditation. It's me who's engaging in meditation. It's me who's getting all the insights and learning and, you know, um, yeah, just, just becoming more spiritual or whatever it is that you're secretly doing the meditation for, right? Um, and and so what the, the non-dual <laughs> practice does, it begins to even deconstruct um, this this duality, this, this, um, this sense that there's a there's a self at the core of meditation, but there's someone there who's engaging in this practice. Um, and there's someone there who's progressing on the path of enlightenment or the path of regulating our emotions or the path of psychotherapeutic healing, whatever it is, it starts to question that basic assumption. And so what, what the non-dual practices tend to instruct, which is very difficult to instruct because it's a kind of paradox, right? Because at this point, you have to get the meditators to not yeah. really do anything, right? So you could say that, especially in predictive processing terms, you're still constructing a sense of self, right? You're still generating, predicting yourself into existence. Mm. You're still predicting yourself in a body, in a space, in a time, in, you know, going through all of these experiences as a, as a human being. Um, and so then if you want, to, want someone to, let's say, transcend or drop that prediction, what do you tell them? It's, it's really difficult. I mean, it's just a hard thing. You don't Because you, if you tell them to do something, they're going to do it, which will generate another sense of self trying to do non-dual practices. Right. So they do these things like uh, in Zen, they might say, do nothing, you know, just sit, don't, don't engage in anything at all. Or if you go to more like Tibetan practices, they may say, just recognize the awareness that's already there. So one of the presumptions of these non-dual practices mm. is that there is this awareness I was wondering, would the term would ego dissolution or ego death would that be similar to non dualism, but just in a different altered state of consciousness, or are they different experiences? Yeah, good question. Um, my um, answer would be that it depends on the nature of the ego dissolution. So I would think that most of the time mm -hmm. when people are experiencing ego dissolution on things like psychedelics, for instance, or um, what they might call ego dissolution when they're you know, going for a run or dancing, you know, so sometimes these can reflect non-dual experiences, but I think most often they do not. And that is because when people describe those kinds of ego dissolution experiences, they tend to describe a kind of merging. They talk about this sense of, oh, I'm merging with my experience. I feel connected yes. to everything. I feel, you know, and this is a really profound, important, helpful experience, but there is still a duality because there's that who is merging with the experience. So this, this is a really good question because it highlights the difference between what is talked about in, in non-duality um, or these non-dual practices. It's not that you begin to merge mm. yourself with cups and tables and your body or whatever it is. It's that you drop 
this illusory separation between them at all. So, you know, in, in, these, in these traditions, they will often say that you can undergo a non-dual experience in the context of your ongoing experience. Your experience doesn't actually fundamentally change, but is that basic inferential assumption that there is some separation between the observer and the observed and that there is a self behind the eyes that's giving rise to all of these processes, that that can sort of be released. And instead, one sort of is able to recognize the whole sphere of experience as one process, including the sense of self. So it's not that my sense of self starts to merge mm. with the world. It's that I can recognize that myself, my sense of self right. is just an arising phenomenon in the field of experience, just in the same way as all the colors, lights, and sounds are arising phenomena. So you get this sort of deeper perspective on experience itself um, rather than having some sort of trippy experience. It doesn't have to be trippy at all. It's usually can be it's described as very grounded, very it's just just the here and now. It's just the true nature of the here and now, sometimes it's said like that. And that's why it's also sometimes pointed to as awareness itself. I have some issues with this idea of awareness, but mm-hmm. in some sense it's it's pragmatically useful because you can say, well, what is the awareness, right? So it's all appearing in awareness. The subject is appearing in awareness. The object is appearing in awareness. And so you can see that awareness is sort of this underlying substance that sort of everything is a part of that we experience. And so in that sense, you get this sort of simultaneous oneness and oneness uh, to experience in, in the non-dual state. Um, and mm. it's, it is a little bit different than any kind of it's it's not a trippy psychedelic experience it's not anything weird happening it's nothing like that it's something very grounded um uh, and ordinary in a way wow. have you ever experienced non-dualism you don't, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to <laughs> um, no it's okay i mean in a, in a way you can say that you, it's hard to answer this question have you experienced it because in a, in a, in some sense the real answer to that question is that is the nature of every experience Every experience is always non-dual. I mean, it's mm. it's it's non it's you can't really experience it. It's just a recognition of the fact that all experience is under it's happening in this space of what you you could call non-dual awareness. Even better than calling it non-dual awareness is just it's happening, right? It's just a happening. You can even drop the happening. It is it just is what it is. And in this sense, um, I know what they're talking about in in, in that way. Wow. Yeah. Well. I'm wary of the time. So in the beginning of um, this episode, we talked about predictive processing. And then now you mentioned these three styles of meditation. And in your paper, you very beautifully mapped out how um, the predictive processing models reflect on these three styles of meditation. Perhaps we can go a little bit more um, into that. Sure. Yeah. So um there's a few important things for understanding this story. So how does this idea of the predictive mind that everything is inference um, and that we're, we're generating the present moment through our inferences from the past connect to these three styles of meditation? Now, one caveat I want to put in here is that there's other styles of meditation as well that are more constructive rather than deconstructive, things like loving kindness, um, meta meditation, compassion meditations, um, deity meditations, tantric meditations, all of these things also exist and we're working those out in, in predictive processing terms. Um, but I just wanted to you know, put that out there that these are also really important practices that we're, we're not really getting into now. But there's, yeah, there's two things that are really important yeah. to understand in order to put these things together. Now, the first is that 
predictive processing happens in levels, and level and and, and it's thought of in levels of abstraction. This is all, the example I always end up giving because it's a cup right right where I am um, almost always. So so when you look at a cup right initially. 100 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds, what the brain encounters or sort of immediately what the brain encounters is the wavelengths of light, right? And then from the wavelengths of light in the retina and the cochlea, the, from there, the, the brain in a, another few hundred milliseconds um, takes out the, some, some, of the, some sort of key statistical regularities or components of those wavelengths of light. So it makes them like very specific um, concrete categorizations about it, like lines or curvature or qualities about the the way the light is the qualities of the light you know very very low level statistical regularity mm-hmm. so that's level one let's say next level is to categorize it a little bit more so at that point you know maybe a, a few hundred milliseconds later you might say okay this cup is you, you you might perceive that there this cup is separate from the surrounding visual information okay so so you might actually start to separate the visual information to say, hey, this is a unique piece of visual information here from its surrounding visual information. Okay, let's say that's level two. Now, it doesn't have to go exactly like this, just to give you an idea of how these levels unfold. Then the next level of prediction, again, this is happening from within, is you're projecting all of this onto wavelengths of light. First, you project these sort of lines and edges and so on. Then you might project the separation. Then you might, then you might project another level, which is to actually say that this is a cup. You might actually get to the point where you can verbalize that this is a particular kind of cup, and that happens, you know, maybe 300, 400 milliseconds after you observe the cup. You get these levels of abstraction that are constantly created in every moment that range from the concrete sensory experience all the way to our higher order thinking and our categories and conceptualizations and our stories from the past and future. Mm But eventually, when all of my predictive hierarchy, all of the abstraction is online, I can talk about cups. I can talk talk about drinking green tea from cups in a place called Japan 10 years ago. Right. So I can get into stories about the past and the future (laughs) abstractions. I can talk about the science of what a cup is and what makes a cup a cup. I can get all abstract about whether cups exist or don't exist based (laughs) on categories. Right. So we can go down all kinds of crazy rabbit holes because of our capacity to abstract. And this capacity to abstract is what, you know, makes us different from, from mm. animals, right? We're able to pull ourselves out of the concrete present moment and actually simulate situations that are not in the here and now. That's, that's sort of the gift and the curse of being human is being able to detach from the reality of this moment and to project all kinds of realities in the next moment or 100 moments from now or a billion moments from now or in, into the infinite future. So the brain is creating each moment by in these levels of abstraction. So that's key thing number one. Now, key thing number two is that these levels of abstraction map into different levels of our self. Um, and so these different levels of our self um, are as follows. Now, I'll start these, this from the top and go down to the bottom. So at the top of the abstract, the most abstract is our narrative self. So this is our thoughts and ideas about ourself across time and from the past to the future, right? So I can tell a story about who Ruben is, who Ruben was, the kind of experiences Ruben had, what school he went to, all these kinds of things. And I think that that's myself <laughs> because I'm able to tell that story and I'm able to think into the past and the future, right? So that is the narrative self is all of our thoughts um, and stories about ourselves. Then one level below that in the abstraction hierarchy that is generated in each moment um, is the experiencing self or sometimes called the embodied self. 
So that is what I am and I take myself to be in this moment, how I experience myself in my body and in the, in the present experience of the now. So how do I feel right now? What's my experience right now? What am I seeing right now? Um, what do I want to do right now? All, all of the things that are kind of pointing attention to the, to the here and now reflect our experiencing or embodied sense of self. Okay, And you kind of see that you need an embodied sense of self in order to have a narrative because it's that embodied sense of self that you project into the narrative. So you can see this sort of hierarchy also just kind of inferentially necessary to be the structure that it is. And so from there, and this is these are kind of things that we talk more about in the paper than other researchers have. So lots of researchers talk about the narrative and the embodied and the experiencing, but there's only a few of us who kind of talk about these mm. next levels, the kind of deeper levels, because these are things that people encounter on things like meditation and psychedelics. So not everybody encounters them. So they pretend that like there's only their embodied part and there's only this uh, this narrative part, but they forget about these deeper components, which are very obvious when you actually start to think about it. And so after the embodied part, there's um, a deeper level of self, which is what we call the witnessing self or the subjective self. So the witnessing self, you can recognize the existence of the witnessing self because of things like open monitoring or simply the fact that you're able to observe what's going on in your body. Okay, you're able to observe mm -hmm. your body and you're able to observe the present moment and you're able to observe the narratives and stories. Therefore, there's some part of you that is also just a witness. So you have this you have this sense of being an embodied self because we identify with our sense of body and the present moment. But then you're able to sometimes in our more mindful moments uh, witness what's going on in our body. And everyone does this. I mean, they say, oh, I'm feeling something in my heart or my stomach is sore. Um, they don't say in that moment, they don't say I am my yeah. stomach, even though they might say this body is my body. It gets all really kind of <laughs> and confusing. But basically, you can recognize mm. that there's a deeper witnessing self in addition to this embodied and narrative self. But then there's also something beyond this witnessing self is when we think about when that duality breaks down, when that separation between subject and object, or when you recognize that there's this underlying awareness that's already there, then what we might call that is non-dual awareness, or we could say that that's the beyond self. Um, that's another way to think about it. But that's where the witness, the separation between minimal the self, would that be another one? Um, so people often associate the minimal self with... Um, it depends who you talk to. So usually the minimal self is associated with things like mm. um, a basic embodied sense of self or a first-person perspective. So the minimal self is closer to what I would describe as the embodied self or the witnessing self, depending on which embodied. philosopher or scientist you talk to. Um, but the, certainly the beyond self, the non-dual, um, is um, different from the minimal self within, within my framework. A good question. And so, okay, the question is now you, we understand that predictive processing happens in these levels of abstraction. And then there's the question of how does meditation interact with these levels of abstraction and these levels of self, right? So how do we put all this together? So the idea is that focused attention, first of all, brings us from the narrative self to our experiencing um, embodied sense of self. And so that's very, really clear how that does that and is well supported by evidence. So in our paper, we, we go through all of the sort of supporting um, scientific evidence for this. So all of it is, is, is really grounded in what we so far know in the data. But basically, what you're going to do first when you start focused attention is you're going to focus your attention on something that's grounded in the present moment rather than in your narrative self, right? So you let go of the narrative self and you begin to stabilize instead with the experiencing or embodied self. 
that's kind of obvious, right? You're bringing your attention in predictive processing terms. You're increasing the precision weighting of the present moment um, in favor or, or instead of your narratives and your thoughts that are constantly um, propagating and p- popping up. So instead, you, you come down the predictive processing hierarchy of abstraction into your embodied experiencing um, mode of self. So this, this, this is coming down from the narrative self into a more embodied experiencing self state. And so you've come down the levels of abstraction one level, you could say. And now you're able to engage in open monitoring. So if you're able to engage in open monitoring, that's because your mind has stabilized enough in the present moment through something like focused attention or going for a run or dancing, whatever. You know, there's so many ways to kind of let go of the narratives and the abstractions that are kind of going on too much. A lot of people just go to the gym or do these kinds of things. I think all of these things work to reduce unnecessary abstraction in the mind. Um, And then you can get into this open monitoring state. And that open monitoring state allows you to observe your experiencing self, to observe your embodied um, um, self and the things that are going on in your body and the things that are going on on in your experience. And so you've come from the narrative to the experiencing um, through focused attention. And now you're moving from the Mm. embodied experiencing into the witnessing through the process of um, uh, open monitoring. So if you can visualize this, it's it's almost like focused attention is bringing you down from narrative to experiencing and then open monitoring from experiencing to witnessing. And open monitoring does the experiencing to witnessing shift by de-reifying us from having this non-attachment, this capacity to mindfully observe whatever is going on in our experience allows us to, in a way, kind of step out of the experience. Instead of being absorbed and kind of lost in whatever is happening in the now, we begin become the observer of the now. And so this witnessing self is able to be recognized. And suddenly we find ourselves with a stronger capacity to just observe. And if you do a longer meditation retreat, you find that this sort of capacity to observe just sort of spills over into your everyday life and you are able to just sort of continue in a sort mm. of observing witnessing mode for a longer period longer and longer periods of time and i actually think there's downsides to everything so i don't think that you know we always want to be focused attention we always want to be open monitoring or we always want to be non-dual i think it's sort of this it's right. the flexibility that matters and it's the flexibility that is sort of liberating and freeing and this is more important in my view so just a small note there but in any case um you're able to get into this witnessing state through open monitoring meditation. And this is further reducing the abstraction in the mind because you're no longer judging or evaluating the present moment. You're being more non-preferential. So in focused attention, you're still sort of preferentially choosing to do something and you're still judging that this thing is more important than the other things. And in the open monitoring, you let go of all that. You let go of the preferential processes. You let go of the judgmental processes, hence non-judgmental observation, which is the nature of mindfulness. Um, And so in that sense, you're reducing, again, this abstraction in the mind. And so you're reducing the content and the abstraction of processing in, in, in predictive processing terms. So now you're in this sort of witnessing state of self. Um, and so now what you have left is if you get really deep into your open monitoring, you have this very pure capacity to just witness. And then you just have these, these little things coming up in your experience, little emotions popping up here and there, or little thoughts popping up here and there. Maybe your experience is already feels very like positive, but it's become very stabilized, very clear. And um, you're able to uh, open monitor very well. Um, and so then what you might be able to do, and it doesn't always have to go in this order, um, but then you can engage in these, these non-dual practices. 
And so this this re- reduces the abstraction to the final point, right? So the final ab- abstraction, you could say, of predictions that's left when you're doing open monitoring is the idea that there's a subject observing an object. There's still me witnessing things. Mm. And so if, if you let go of that prediction, coming even deeper into the here and now, and all of these states can be construed as deepening into the here and now, all the way from the narrative to the experiencing to the witnessing to the non-dual, all of these are reflections of deepening closer and coming closer and closer into the here and now. And so if you come all the way into the here and now, um, you might either encounter the absence of selfhood um, and entering a kind of having this sort of recognition of the the non-dual awareness, or you might have something else, which is called a cessation, where there's a complete absence of experience for a short while. And so these cessations are something we're doing research on, and um, we'll have a paper coming out any day now on that, wow. where people undergo a brief absence really? of consciousness. <laughs> and and from this brief absence of consciousness, their mind can really transform in a really uh, uh, profound way, um, and, and then might be followed by this kind of deep non-dual experience or, or, or so on. Um, and so there's all kinds of interesting things that can happen when the, the mind deconstructs itself that deeply into the here and now. Um, and now I also want to put like, that's, that's the general story I would, I would say about how it works. So to put it really simply, basically each meditation technique we, we recognize for the first time that they map onto the way that the brain constructs mm. its experience in moment to moment and demonstrates I think quite clearly how the meditation practices gradually deconstruct this abstract processing in the mind until all that abstract processing falls away and you encounter something like the ground of the mind, however that might appear. And so that's that's sort of what's going on. But I also wanted to make two points, actually. One is that really difficult experiences can arise when one is in, engaging in, in intense meditation practice. So it's really important to have some guidance and also to be working with someone who can tell you that, okay, no, that's not really what we're talking about because it's easy to get confused about what kind of experiences are coming up and say, okay, this mm-hmm. is a non-believing, this is this, and get excited and all of these kinds of things. So one thing I would say is that not all these experiences are, are experienced positively. They're easy to misunderstand, and easy to mistake. Um, that's really important. And then also that, you know, it's tempting to say that the goal of meditation is this sort of complete deconstruction of reality. The point of our sort of paper is to highlight this is what naturally happens if you take it far enough, because that is the nature, the true nature of the here and now is actually to to disappear because everything is constructed in this way. But that doesn't mean that we should necessarily engage in meditation to try to get to something Mm. like that. That doesn't make any sense, right? Not efficient. It's not efficient. It doesn't work. It's pragmatically doesn't make sense, but it also sort of metaphysically and biologically doesn't make sense you don't you don't try to get somewhere because that just um kind of defeats the whole whole effectiveness of the practice so those are just a few caveats to throw in there but that's sort of the big picture um of the theory yeah wow absolutely beautifully said thank you so much for sharing that it it's just really cool to me because as you're explaining, it just makes perfect sense. It lines out very beautifully. It shows how focus attention can have the ability to diminish certain processes in the brain. I always did wonder if, um, I know we don't go into brain networks a lot, but if it's also about 
certain brain networks also disengaging with one another? Of course it does. It maps onto different brain networks. And, you know, classically what you'll find certainly and very consistently is changes between focused attention, open monitoring, the default mode network, moving on to attention or salience networks and so on. So you do definitely get really robust changes there. And you also do find um, that in these deeper states, you get the biggest reductions in, th- in key nodes of the default mode network or also areas of the brain that are particularly associated yeah. with self-processing. So we unpack these to the best of our knowledge in, in, in our paper as well. But important caveat here is that all, all meditation techniques, one, one thing we do know from the neuroscience is that they certainly very clearly map onto different neural activity. I mean, this is kind of anything that you're doing maps onto different neural activity. But it gets much more complicated than that because mm. you have state effects, so what the person is doing now in the moment. Then you have trait effects, what what has changed in the, the mind of the person over time. And then I would add a third thing to that, which is depth effects. So it depends, you know, the difference between the focused attention state that you're doing for 10 minutes versus the focused attention state that you've been doing for four weeks, 10 hours a day is totally different in terms of what's going to go right what's going to be going on in the brain. So the picture gets extremely complicated. And I think it's going to take us quite a bit of time to actually map out that space in a way that I think is, is meaningful, but the kind of promising insight that is, you know, in hindsight, super obvious is that you do get the reductions and um, activations um, simultaneously where you expect to see them when people do engage in these practices. Um, and, And so there's clearly robust changes, but the exact nature of those changes and how consistent they'll be across meditation practices. We just need more rigorous research and we need to take better account of the different styles. So they need to be consistently done, for example, in these terms of these focused attention, open monitoring and non-dual, which they haven't been. Um, and they also need to take into account state, trait and depth before we can have a kind of uh, comprehensive picture. And I think this is going to take time, but we're doing better and better. I mean, it's, it's sort of thousands right. of meditation studies published a year now. So it's an exciting time. Absolutely. Dr. Rubin, um, as a final question, I guess it would be a final two questions. Um, I believe as a, you know, as a researcher, something that's always very important is moving your research from bench to bedside, um, you know, how this research can help people, you know, future researchers or basically in the real world. Um, Just personally for yourself, uh, do you think your research gave you any insight or, or, you know, did it help you in any real world application? Uh, Do you think it has helped your practice even by knowing certain processes and how it works? And if so, why was it important to even understand it? And then the final one would be, where to next for you? Where is your research um, currently? What are you currently focusing on? Which I think you gave us a hint already. (laughs) Yeah, really uh, cool questions. Um, So from a personal standpoint, I mean, definitely, I think it reflects into into my practice of of meditation. I mean, it is, it is true to my practice as well. Like it does, it does seem to be correct and consistent with my own experience Mm -hmm. and the experience of others that I speak to. So I, I really, again, I try to ground the theoretical stuff also to make sure that we're doing justice to the phenomenology because that's what we're trying to understand. And the kind of positive side of this is that I've, I've spoken to people about these models who are meditators and I get a lot of emails, actually people saying that this has improved their meditation practice, which is completely surprising to, to me. Wow. And, you know, I've also like done 
just like for fun, these kind of workshops and some festivals and things where I've talked about this model and, and um, we were going to kind of do some meditation practice. And, you know, what I've found is that just talking about the model actually helps people understand and in a way get into the meditation states much quicker. So there's this sort of like funny way that these things start to melt together. You know, the, the pragmatism starts to melt together with the phenomenology, which starts to melt together with the actual objective models of like predictive processing. So this to me is like mm. really exciting because we start to see like all these things that we usually separate, like objective, subjective, pragmatic. We separate these things, but suddenly we can potentially start to put these things together in a way that just like serendipitously works. So to me, yeah, I mean, I think I think the hope is that by understanding these meditation yes. practices in a computationally um, grounded way, in a way that's grounded in our understanding of the mind, is that we can actually start to perhaps, I don't know if this will be my job or somebody else's, but to actually make meditation easier for people because it becomes simpler because people can understand it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the um, contemplative traditions often defer to this thing like, oh, it's too complex to understand, you know, it can't be talked about, you know, what, these kinds of things. There's truth to that at a certain stage of practice, we need to let go of conceptualization, but a basic understanding within mm. the analytic mind is still extremely helpful for actually being able to relax the mind to being able to let go because you can understand how this works, right? And it actually makes sense. And then people do things because it makes sense to them. So all of these things, I think, are, are potential sort of pragmatic, practical out there in the world, um, values of that, and, and um, specifically in the meditation case. Um, now, what was, what was the other question? Was there another question? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there was. Um, but just to quickly highlight onto what you said, that was very beautiful and sounds so fun. I would have definitely joined <laughs> your workshops. But I agree with you that somehow having an intentionality with something makes the sport or activity or whatever it is easier to understand when we know the formula. Um, it feels like it's easier to apply it when you know the mechanisms of how to build, you know, muscles or how certain food groups work and how beneficial they are, somehow the application becomes easier. So I can highly relate and understand to what you were saying. Um, and the final question was, where to next? Um, where is your research focusing on, you know, in the yeah. near future? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you said it perfectly. Yeah. Um, and so next, what's next? I am writing a book. I am um, pretty pretty good way through a book that wow. I'm really, yeah, pretty excited about. So I'm, but I'm not going to say anything about that. It's kind of a secret because I, you know, it's still going any, any way. Um, but that, um, uh, these things, these cessation experiences are really interesting. Um, Buddhist jhanas are really interesting. So these are de deepening states of serenity, tranquility, focused attention. I think those are really uh, juicy things. Um, I'm working a lot also around uh, insight and psychedelics. So there's some, cool projects happening around, you know, wow. what, what is going on with all these insights that oh, people are having on psychedelics? To what extent can we trust them? To what extent can we ensure that people are, as, as we make these mm. things uh, more mainstream, to, how, how can we ensure that the beliefs that we're, are, are coming up in these moments of plasticity elicited by psychedelics, how can we ensure that these insights and subsequent beliefs are actually valuable to people rather than something that is actually, you know, potentially delusional or, um, you know, you, you know, these things are kind of associated with things like conspiracy thinking and all these kind of things. So I think being able to elicit a lot of insights uh, in people is, is magnificent, but there's a lot of risks uh, and, and, you know, rewards there. And we need to kind of um, somehow push 
it in the direction of reward if we're going to you know make these things mainstream in, in an epistemically safe way yeah wow absolutely fascinating also how freaking exciting for your book um best of luck for that dr rubin this has been absolutely amazing honestly i truly had such a fun and insightful <laughs> conversation with you so i truly thank you for your time and you know hope to connect again in the future yeah thanks so much uh, you're a wonderful host excellent questions and um, thank you for uh, making sense of all my rambling it was a pleasure thank you very much Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you did like this episode, please do support us by subscribing, sharing, or liking. If interested to reach out to Dr. Rubin directly, I will be sharing his website with this episode description, along with his Twitter and his research paper. So please feel free to follow, to follow his work. It's absolutely amazing, and I highly, highly recommend it. Thank you again, and we'll catch you in the next episode.